The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your New Testaments to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll have our lesson begin with some words of Jesus there in John, chapter 8. I want to express my appreciation for Russ and leading that song. It's a wonderful song. It's something that we often think about as children of God. Uh, the place of heaven where God dwells. We want to talk about it. We want to sing about it. It's on our minds constantly, if that is where our heart is. It's the whole driving force of the way we live and the reason we do the things that we do and the reason we make the sacrifices that God has called us to make because we believe as people of God and as people of faith that heaven is worth it. And so we have it constantly before us to remind ourselves of that. But we understand that like any place, any destination that we're seeking to arrive at, there is a way to get there. Uh, there's a way that we should go. And we see of in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, there are really only two ways of life and only one way, which is narrow and difficult, leads to heaven where God dwells, the place we just spent some time singing and joy about, and the place we dream about, and the place we think every single day about and we wish to be. And that path, that one way, is found in God's Word. It's of paramount importance that we understand as people who are spiritually focused, the most important thing, the integral part of our salvation is God's Word. And you may say, wait a second, isn't it Jesus' sacrifice? And I would respond, where do you read of Jesus? How do you know Him? How do you know of His sacrifice? How do you know it was necessary? How do you know of His plan? It's God's Word. We don't know anything about salvation, and we don't know the way to heaven without the revelation of God's Word. And so it's logical to then assert that the way we deal with God's Word and how we respond to God's Word is of paramount importance, which it's troubling when we read in places like John chapter 8 of a people who understood the importance of God's Word and people who knew of heaven did not respond to it in the way that they should, in the way that would lead them to heaven. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to some Jewish people and He's speaking of Himself as the Son of Man, telling them that they cannot follow Him where He goes and telling them that if they don't believe in Him, then they will die in their sins because He is the only way sins will be forgiven. And in John chapter 8 and verse 30, it says, As He spoke these words, many believed in Him. I don't know really of a crowd in any given context where there is true solidarity, where everyone believes the same thing or at least on the same level. I believe today we have solidarity. We believe there is a God Maybe our faith is on different levels. Maybe there are some here who don't know God as well as others or who are not in the way of truth just yet, need some direction. And so it is here in John chapter 8. There are some who are beginning to believe in Jesus, but evidently in that crowd and in many crowds that Jesus talked to, there were some who were near to being fully convinced that He is the Messiah, maybe not convinced of what He's talking about and being in agreement with it, but 
pretty near to convinced that he's that king to come, as we saw in John 6 when he fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish, and some went to take him and make him king. And then there are some who are stubborn, and it doesn't matter what Jesus does or what he'll say, they're not going to believe. And so we have that context here in John 8. With those who believed in him, he continued to say, stressing what true discipleship is, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. In verse 32, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And it seems that verse 33 included some of those skeptics where there were those who answered them saying, we are Abraham's descendants and I've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus tries to clarify. He's not speaking of political freedom. He's not speaking of national freedom. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. He's speaking of spiritual freedom. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And he agrees that they are, in a sense, Abraham's children. I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. I think we're familiar with the text, how it begins to escalate, where Jesus identifies who he's talking about. Their father is Satan, and he is a liar from the beginning. They do the works of their father, Satan, not of Abraham, or else they believe in him. And he eventually utters the statement that I am, indicating he is almighty and eternal Jehovah God. And they took up stones to throw at him and kill him, and he escaped their presence that I want us to especially notice what he says in verse 37. There were some who were beginning to believe in him, and evidently there were some who weren't that far along. In fact, they were quite contrary to that beginning of belief. They were stubborn in their ways. And he says, you seek to kill me, not because there's not enough evidence, not because I'm not really the Messiah, not because I've done something to deserve this, and I need to apologize in some way. You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. What I'm saying in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the truth that I'm uttering concerning the Messiah and how I'm fulfilling that, it has no place in you. In other words, the truth is not what you expected it to be. And so the truth will not have free course in you, as the American Standard Version translates it. You see, that word of God is the power of God to salvation, Romans 1 and verse 16. That's how we're going to get to heaven, the place we were just singing about. And it's the only way through the gospel of Christ. God is powerful to save you. It's the Greek word dunamis in Romans 1 and verse 16, where we get the word dynamite in English. It is of immense power and it's there, but the power of God is only accessed in his word. That's the channel. That's the medium he's chosen. And so we can't access it in any other way. And so it stands to reason that we have no hope of salvation if we are so close-minded and so stubborn-willed that God's word doesn't have the freedom, the free course to work in us as it's designed to do. If we have walls up and if we have our hearts hardened, it's of paramount importance to give place for God's word in our lives before we've become a Christian. So we can become a Christian being convinced of the truth. And throughout our walk of faith, we've got to make sure the word of God continually has place in us, that it can do its work.
and that it can bring salvation to our souls. I would suggest to you that the place God's Word should have in us is a place of love in our hearts. In Psalm 119, in verse 97, the psalmist uttered these words, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so we need to understand how we would love God's Word. What does it mean that God's Word would have a place of love in our hearts? Some people think they love God's Word, and they manifest that by always carrying around a Bible with them, by having a Bible on every single table in every single room of their house, by having a picture with Scripture up on their walls, framed and looking nice and pretty. And while those things are good and they're certainly not bad in and of themselves, God's Word sitting on a table, on a bookshelf, hanging on the wall, is not an expression of love for it. But cracking that Word open and studying it thoroughly and constantly thinking on it and molding our lives by it, that's what God's Word being in our heart and us loving it means. He says, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Consider earlier in that great psalm, in verse 9, he speaks in this entire psalm about the law of the Lord and his relationship to it. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed, according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments from your, of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice the value he places upon God's word. He rejoices in God's word as in riches. You might have seen a video before of an individual shortly after they've won the lottery and the joy and glee on their face. You see, that's what the world views as joyous. Riches, earthly riches. And that's used as an analogy. That's used as an illustration, if you will, in verse 14. But the object of rejoicing is no physical wealth. It's the spiritual wealth of God's word. And and we see it as that and we understand its value and, and we love it. We treasure it. And we show that by putting it in ourselves, putting it in our heart, making sure that it's dwelling within us. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21 that Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, it's also true in saying, as we read in Psalm 119, is that what you treasure will be in your heart. And that's how a Christian's relationship should be with the Word of God. We should love it greatly and hide it in our heart, and meditate on it, think on it. Proverbs 23 and verse 23 tells us to buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Can you ever think of something that would be of so much value that you would buy it and you would never sell it, never part from it for any price? For me physically, I don't know of anything that I wouldn't sell for any price. There's always a price. But maybe there's something of sentimental value that you would never sell for any price whatsoever. I know that's true with a lot of people who are sentimental in that way. He's telling us to have that kind of thought process to the millionth degree concerning the Word of God. Buy it up. Never sell it. Treasure it always. Understand its value. Meditate on it. Job said in Job 23 and verse 12, 
I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Do we view the word of God as if it is our necessary food? Do we treasure it more than the next meal? Do we love it that much? I think also we can stand to reason that... There you go, my watch recording everything I say. It stands to reason that if we should treasure God's Word in that way and manifest that by our love for God's Word, then certainly it should have a place of honor in our heart as well. There is going to be a way that manifests in our lives. You know, some people, just like they say they love God's Word and they have a great place in their heart for it, a great space for it to dwell, but it's not manifest in the actions of their life, would say that I think God's Word is more valuable than any other thing. God is way wiser than any man, yet they still consult man's wisdom. If they want advice, they don't open the pages of Holy Scripture. They ask their worldly friend or worldly neighbor, But notice the comparison in Psalm 1, speaking of the blessed man, yet in the first verse, it speaks of the blessed man in the negative, something that he is not. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He does not honor the wisdom of his peers, He does not treasure and value their ways. And he certainly does not honor and value their mockery towards spiritual things. What he honors is God's word. He doesn't want to be a part of that life. He wants to spend time in God's word and he wants to obey God's word. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul said, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. There's a lot of people in the world who think they're wise, who know nothing about Scripture. If they really want to be wise, they've got to confess that they're fools and that the only wise way is God's way. they got to put Him in a place of honor in their hearts. Not any philosopher, not any individual of great pedigree in academia. They don't need to put those who are heroes of our country in that place of honor. Not family members and friends, but God and His Word is what they treasure the most. We need to understand what Isaiah pointed out in Isaiah 55 and verse 8, where by inspiration he wrote concerning God speaking, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do we believe that about God's word? There's not a thing that anyone can tell me that is more valuable than God's word. And any wisdom that I can seek and ascertain in another man, if it's wisdom at all, will come from God's Word to begin with. There's certainly a design in the Lord's body, and as we read in the Scripture, of those who are strong in the faith and mature, imparting wisdom to those who are babes in Christ. But how is that imparted? Through the value of God's Word. That's what we value. 
Some think that they honor God. Some think that they value God and His wisdom. Yet their actions show otherwise, just like in Matthew 15, those of the Pharisees who did not value God's Word like they thought they did and like they boasted that they did. But their actions showed that they actually valued the words of men above as they have made the commandments of God of no effect by their traditions. In Matthew 15 and verse 7, Jesus said, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You do not honor God except through the instruction in His Word. But that comes first from understanding that His way is best and trusting in that. We love God's Word, and so we hide it in our hearts because we want to honor it, and it's, it is honorable to us. It is something that is of immense value. And all of those things, all of those dispositions, those thoughts about God's eternal Word lead to an unwavering trust. No one is going to listen to God's Word if they don't trust in it first. Why would I sit there and study this ancient book if I didn't trust that it's from that Almighty God that created and therefore is of immense power. We need to trust God's Word if it's ever going to make an effect in our lives. It will not be powerful enough to surpass our doubts. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We've got to trust in it. We've got to trust in God. Five times in the epistles to first to Timothy and Titus, those two epistles, and then the epistle to Titus, is the phrase, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Paul speaks by inspiration to the trustworthy nature of God's Word. And it covers various topics, but it should be true about everything. That could be said before every single verse of Scripture. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all. All acceptance, not some acceptance. You know, some want to read those very verses in 1 Timothy. And see, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. But they get to chapter 2, where it talks about the order of creation and the role of subjection and not of authority with women and the way that we should worship and even dress and then they reject it. And what that shows us is they did not have a place of trust for God's Word in their heart. If we really trust God's Word, if we really believe that it's a trustworthy saying, then we will follow it with all of our being. Jeremiah manifested that trust in chapter 10 of that book in verse 23 when he said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Then how are his steps directed? Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise and in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. He says trust in the Lord and in verse 8, that's what we trust in the Lord for, for our well-being. I trust God, so I'm going to lean on Him. I'm going to follow Him in all of my ways. I'll acknowledge Him. There's no understanding that I have that I'll trust in, but in all that God has said, I trust, and I know that that will be my health. That will be my strength. 
It's just like we mentioned before in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We become a fool that we may become wise. God's Word should have a place of love in our hearts and honor and trust. But there's a lot of people, the majority of people in the world, we can say that because Jesus said it, where God's Word has no place in them. It does not have the ability to run its free course because they've barred it out. They've shut it out. They've built up walls in their own stubbornness and in their own distraction. We need to make sure that we're not guilty of those things and we're not creeping toward those things. Some reasons why God's Word has no place in some is because they're too busy. Some people don't have enough time for God's Word. It's not that it wouldn't make sense if they sat down and studied it. It's not that they don't have the intellectual capability. Everyone does. All can reach the understanding that even Paul said, has, he said in Ephesians chapter 3. It's, it's not that the person who is speaking God's Word is incapable of uttering those simple words in a way that could be understood. A lot of times the problem is because people are just too busy. They're not there to hear God's Word or they just don't give time themselves to studying it. And they're a lot like Martha in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Luke records that it happened as they went. He entered a, uh, a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried about and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was too busy. And it's not that what she was doing was wrong. It's not that everything we do that is at a time we're not given to studying God's Word is inherently wrong. But it's about prioritizing. It's about finding the time and making the time. And on top of that, especially with Martha and Mary, it's about standing back and taking a second to observe and consider the situation you're in. And prioritize then what's most important now. Martha was doing a good work, but Mary saw the importance in having the Messiah in their house, and she was going to take advantage of it. Some are just too busy with that. Sunday rolls around and, and they're just too busy. They have too much on their plate, so they're not going to make it to worship. Or they've gone home on a Sunday night after worship and, and they're looking forward to a, a week that is full of work and stress and got so much on their plate and so many irons in the fire. And then they get to Wednesday night and they haven't even prayed to God or cracked open His Word in those couple of days. Or maybe they miss that worship service and go all the way to the next Sunday without doing it. And it's not that they're doing a lot of things that are wrong and sinful, but they're too busy. And God's Word can affect the soul and the heart that does not look into it. We should be busy like Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was but 12 years old, His family had gone to Jerusalem, and they went back to their home, and Jesus lingered. And they came and found Him and were amazed and they said, as he sat there with those teachers of the law, asking and answering questions, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them in verse 49 of Luke 2, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? From day one, Jesus' priority was his father's will. 
He was never too busy for God. He was never too busy to learn. He was never too busy to act. You know, there are times when we can become guilty, and I speak for myself, of of looking to Jesus and thinking that because he's the perfect son of God, and we read things like this about him, we expect that of him, but it shouldn't be expected of us. And we would never say that, but we we kind of show that in our attitude and the way we act from day to day. But Jesus was given as the perfect example. And those who say they abide in him ought to walk as he walked, First John chapter 2 says. Jesus always had time. Yes, he was perfect. He never sinned. He never messed up. He was not weak for a second. But we follow him in his steps. That's what he calls us to. Jesus always had time for God's word. He made time. And when he found time, he didn't waste it. In John 9 and verse 4, he said, I must work the works with him of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And Jesus understood that my time is limited, as is all our time. In Ephesians 5 and verse 15, Paul then says, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He tells us to redeem the time because the days are evil. That tells us that if we don't buy up what opportunities we find to study God's word and learn of God's word and do what God's word says each and every opportunity we see, there's so much evil around us. There's so much opportunity for sin that that is what will be filling the void. If we don't make time for God's word, we're making time for Satan. And that's why God's word has no place in some. And some, they don't find any place in themselves for God's word because they've just lost interest. You know, this is something that Christians need to be on guard with all the time. Always understanding the need to feed that fire and cultivate that interest. Because it's not like we become a Christian and 20 years later we're hearing brand new things. That may be the case. Maybe there's not been teaching in your life. Maybe you've been a part of a, a weak congregation that hasn't been given to the whole counsel of God like the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20. He taught the Ephesians regarding. Maybe that's the case, but there are some who have been in the church for many, 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 many years and they probably haven't heard a new sermon and so far as its its basic content is concerned, they know their Bible so well where you really can't tell them something new. You may say something in a different light. They're still learning. There's depth there that will, will never quite reach in entirety. It doesn't matter if you've memorized Genesis to Revelation. There's always depth that you reach. You can know a verse inside and out and back to front, front to back, but... You can still learn from that verse things that you haven't thought about before that can be applied. But when it comes down to it, if you've got a book that is 2,000 years old, like the New Testament, and it's been being taught and preached all that time, and nothing's changed from it, you're going to hear a lot of the same things too. And there's going to be the temptation Satan places within our lives of losing interest in that. I've heard it before. You know, as a preacher speaking with other preachers, you hear stories about things they've had to deal with in the past. Howard's told me a few of the times where he's had dealings with 
stubborn individuals whose arguments and thoughts were just so far wrong, it, it wasn't even funny. And, and there are people like that in the world. I've heard of a time where an individual was brought in to work with a congregation and an individual in that congregation came up to him and said, I want to hear something new every single time you step into that pulpit. That's impossible. We've got the same book that has been around for 2,000 years as far as the New Testament is concerned, I say again. And each and every one of that has probably had it all our lives and had access to it and have heard stories from it. And there's nothing new that's been added to it in all that time. We will not hear this a new thing every time we get in the pulpit. And, and really, the reality of that is if you hear something new, we've got to be on guard about that and search the Scriptures to find out if it's so. I'm not saying it's impossible to hear something new because we're always learning and coming to a greater knowledge of the truth. But if our interest is to always hear something new, then we're in trouble because we've lost interest in the ancient and eternal Word of God. You know, that was a problem with some in Athens in Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul saw that opportunity. He redeemed the time and he started preaching and he gained a lot of attention. But some of them were people that just wanted to hear new things. As verse 21 indicates, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I think that that's in part what was wrong with the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. You know, we don't really read much negative in Ephesians. We read of the encouragement of unity between Jew and Gentile and the reason for that. We don't read a lot of reproof in Ephesians. We do have instruction and we have information and we have encouragement, but not a lot of reproof, not like a Corinthian letter we read in 1 Corinthians. But we get to Revelation 2 where the seven churches of Asia are being addressed and they are one of the five churches that is reproved. Jesus said, I know your works in verse 2, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. You have preserved, uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That sounds like a strong congregation. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They lost their fire. They had lost their fervid spirit. I think they lost interest in some degree. They were doing the right things and going through the right motions, but their heart wasn't invested in it. We can come to the assembly and, and hear a Bible class, hear a lesson, hear a scripture being read and, and partake of the Lord's Supper and, and amen things and, and think through them and understand that they are true, but not really be interested in them. And it's caused us to space out sometimes. I know is the case with each and every one of us. It happens at some point in time. We need to make sure we're not losing interest. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, this is what Peter thought was extremely important as his life neared its end. He said, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. He's not saying I've got only X amount of time to to draft this new manuscript which has this new information so that you can be well equipped. He says, I just need to remind you of what you already know. This is not a memory thing. This is not an academic matter. 
This is a refreshing of the soul with the truth of God. Being reminded, giving confidence from God's word that we do already know, but that's reaffirmed to us and being urged further to follow the truth. I know it's true, but sometimes I need someone to tell it to me again. And maybe I need to hear it in a a slightly different tone or a different way. And, And maybe that happens. I've heard it over and over and over again. But the more times I hear it, the more my faith is being built. That's what Peter's focus was. I need to tell you these things. You already know them. I'm not telling you anything new, but you got to know them. You got to be reminded of them. We need to fully believe in God's word as a necessity, like our food day to day, so that we don't lose interest. I don't know a person who has ever lived who has lost interest in food. They may have lost interest in a type of food because they've eaten it over and over and over again, but they don't throw that out and never eat again. They turn to some more food. In John chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus said, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. That's the word of God. And we need to have an entire interest in it always. And then some don't have a place for God's word in them because they're too fond of sin. There are too many people that are too wrapped up in what the world has to offer. There's a problem with that. James speaks to Christians in James 4 in verse 4 when he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this is not one of those things that is highlighting some very base and wretched people who are completely on the other side of things. It manifests a kind of lukewarmness where they have friendship with the world. It's not like they're in gross immorality. Some of them may have been, but it just required, or what what these words required was a situation where they were making nice with the world. They were fond of the world. They were interested in the things of the world. The things of the world preoccupied them with their time. And as a result, it didn't say that, you know, You're close to God, but not close enough. It said, you're an enemy of God. We've got to abhor those matters of sin and be willing to part with them or else God's word is not going to be able to do what it's meant to do. In Romans 8, carnal mindedness is addressed much like James 4 and verse 4, where Paul says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God, saying the same thing. Why? For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God is spirit. His law is spiritual. So if our thoughts are merely carnal and material and looking to pleasure like James 4 talks about and worldly, God's word will not have an effect on our lives. As we studied this morning from Acts 17 and verse 11, we've got to have that readiness, that predisposition, that willingness for God's Word to work in our lives. And sin, what sin does is it's that barricade with God's Word. In James 1 and verse 21, they're encouraged to receive the Word with meekness, but they're encouraged to do something else prior to that. When James says, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, get rid of the barricade, so that the word can come in and you can do what it says. 
We can't hold on to sin if we expect God's Word to be able to work in our lives. We've got to repent and then do what God says. And thirdly, we consider the consequences of Jesus' words in John 8 and verse 37 to those people that He says His Word has no place in. When the Word is not given free course in an individual's life, there are terrible, terrible consequences. And this is why it's so important that we make sure the Word has those places in our lives, that we love it, that we honor it, and that we're willing to do it always. Consider that if God's Word is not given free course in a person's heart, in his life, then the obvious result will be sin. Back in Psalm 119 and verse 11, we noted that the psalmist said, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it stands to reason that the opposite is true. If God's word is not hidden in your heart, if it has no place in you, then you'll be given to sin. If what prohibits sin is God's word in your heart, then the absence of God's word inhibits sin. In 1 John 3 and verse 4, sin is defined for us by the spirit of inspiration. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And notice what John goes on to inform us of in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Notice this, though. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. And he gives the reason why. For his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. What John is not saying is that those who have been born of God will never, ever, ever, ever sin again. That they will then be perfect for the rest of their lives. Because in chapter 2 he said, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. He's still the propitiation for our sins. What he's also not saying is that it's impossible for a Christian to sin. He cannot sin, though, is what he's saying. And it goes down to the detail of the reason why. Because God's seed remains in him. We read in the New Testament of God's seed, and we understand it to be the Word of God. It's in the parable of the sower. It's in the text of 1 Peter chapter 1. You have been born of incorruptible seed through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And the reason a child of God sins when he sins is because God's word isn't in him at that time. But when God's word is abiding in the Christian, much like Psalm 119 and verse 11, he will not be able to sin because God's word is guiding him at that time. And God's word does not lead to sin. It's a paramount importance that God's word has a place in our lives so that we can live sinless. We can live holy lives. We can be like the Son of God. Because if it's not there, we will sin. And if it's not there, then our heart will be hardened more and more. First Timothy chapter 4 speaks of a specific apostasy. The Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And I want us to key in on a phrase in verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. These are people who once knew the truth. But then little by little, they drifted away. That's what apostasy gives us the image of. Not an over-the-night thing, not an overnight departure from God's Word, but a little by little. You're drifting like you're in a boat in calm waters. You're drifting away. And that happened to them because they were giving heed to these spirits, these teachings that were contrary to God. They weren't from God, they were from Satan. 
And little by little, they did this. And little by little, their heart began to be hardened, to be seared from God's word to the extent that now God's word cannot penetrate their hearts. They've completely fallen away. We don't give heed to false teaching and we don't give heed to philosophies of men and the wisdom of men because our heart will become hardened. We don't ignore God's word, but we treasure it like we said before or else our heart will be hardened. In Romans, the first chapter in verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's speaking of the Gentiles specifically. And it really manifests what a hardening of the heart is. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And in verse 24, 26, and 28, it says that God gave them up to various things. They didn't want to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a debased mind. In other words, God's not going to hold you against your will, which means if you're not listening to Him, if His Word is not abiding in you, your heart is getting more and more desensitized to the things of the Spirit. And it's in more danger it was than the day before. And we need to be on guard about that. And lastly, obviously, the consequence is that we'll be condemned by that very word that we're hardened against. We've got to make sure that we hold on to God's word for dear life, that we hold fast to the pattern, that we dwell upon it and meditate upon it because it's the answer to the test in the end, if you will. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt right now that we are right with God. That if judgment day was tonight, just like that rich man who built up his silos so that he can have a good future, his soul is required of him that night. If that happens to us, we can know now that we are safe, that we are right with God. But only through his word. Which means if you believe in something contrary to what God's word says, You can't have confidence. If you're doing something contrary to what God's word says, you can't have confidence. It's his word that gives us that confidence because it's the standard of judgment. John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, he rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. He's telling them right now, if you reject what I've just said, you know where you're going because that's the standard of judgment. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. And you can convince yourself Otherwise, you can convince yourself that although the truth plainly and clearly contradicts what I believe over here, that this is actually the truth, even though this is the inspired word of God, you can convince yourself for the rest of your life. But in the end, God's word will win outright. In Hebrews 4 and verse 11, the Hebrew writer warned, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience that is in the Israelites falling in the wilderness. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What are your thoughts? What's your intent? You only truly know. No one knows the things of man except the spirit of man which dwells in him. Except God does. And his word will make it manifest in the end. What, What do you really want? Do you want to get to heaven that we were singing about earlier? Is that your true focus? Do you really want to please God? His word is the only way to do it. And so be honest with yourself now while you have the chance because the word will judge us in the end. And there's no creature, verse 13, hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is, again, of paramount importance that we give God's word a place in us. 
that we allow it to run free course because it is the most powerful thing in the world, but it is powerless in the life of the one who doesn't want it to do anything for them. In the life of the one who really hasn't given place to it because God's given us free will as well. And so really it's up to us to allow God's power to work in our lives. To get to heaven, we've got to follow His Word. And to follow His Word, we've got to cultivate our heart and turn away from what the world has to offer. What we want to do is extend an invitation to those who are here this evening. It may be that you have not obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. We read of that in Mark 16 and verse 15 when Jesus told His apostles in the Great Commission to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then he uttered words of the gospel in verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Do you have a place for that in your life? Are you willing to submit to those commands to have remission of your sins? Does God's word have a place in your heart? If it does, we can assist you this evening. And if there's any other spiritual thing that you need and we can assist you with, we urge you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.